Welcome to On Cities with host Carrie Pennebod. Over the next hour, you'll learn from Carrie and her guests how the design of the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Now, here is Carrie. Welcome to On Cities. This show is dedicated to the design of our cities and the ways that the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. I'm so happy to have Vitol Rubczynski back on the program. Vitold is an esteemed writer, critic, professor, and architect. He's the author of more than 20 award-winning books, ranging in subjects from the history of the chair to an account of the life and work of Frederick Law Olmsted, as well as numerous books on architecture and the city. His articles have appeared in The Atlantic and The New York Times, and he has served as the architectural critic for Saturday Night, Wigwag, and Slate. Vitold also practiced as a registered architect and is the Emeritus Professor of Urbanism at the University of Pennsylvania. In this episode, Vitold shares the insights that he gathered in the making of his book, Makeshift Metropolis. We will weave historical insights with future predictions of cities, and he will discuss projects that he believes challenges the conventional notions of urban living. Welcome back to On Cities, Vitold. It is always a pleasure to be speaking with you. Thank you, Carrie. Looking forward to it. So, Vitold, you have such varied interests, and they guide the creation of your numerous books. So tell us, what brought you to write the book, Makeshift Metropolis? Well, I had written a book called City Life, which was a, a history of, of American cities, why, how American cities develop, why they are different from European cities, basically. But it was, it was essentially historical, and I thought it was time to look at the present day and what we've learned in the last few decades, when that book was written, uh, about cities, because in in a way, we had messed up cities enormously in the 50s and 60s with urban renewal and building highways through cities and uh, building public housing, enormous public housing projects. And what I wanted to write about was what have we learned since? What Because it seems we, we have learned things and we've learned we're sort of putting the city back together. It's not necessarily the most dramatic period. But it's it's an important sort of period between the 50s and 60s and, and the mistakes we made and then what we've learned from those. Hmm. Actually, before delving into maybe the, the particulars of the book, I, I want to ask you a simple question, which is, how would you define a city? Uh, my very first book, which was not about cities, but I quoted Samuel Johnson, and he said, definitions are tricks for pedants. I've always believed that. So I, I'm not going to define a city because I don't think, I don't think it's useful. Uh, it's very important, of course, if you're a, a, a politician or a, uh, a statistician, you have to define things because you have metropolitan areas and cities and there are differences between towns and cities and counties and so on. But I'm since I'm not one of those people, I, I don't think it's useful to define a city. I think the definition historically has changed over time enormously. So we think of, for instance, Venice or Florence as a city. They were tiny. They wouldn't qualify as a city today, uh, it's, which is amazing when you think of Florence and what it produced, and yet it's the size of a, what we would call a big town. It's really, a, you're talking about 20 or 30,000 people maybe. Uh, there were very large cities like Paris and London. Uh, Rome in, in the classic period was a large city. But uh, the definitions have sort of changed Cities traditionally were places for a long time in the Middle Ages where, which had a cathedral. A town with a cathedral was a city. A town without a cathedral was just a town. So, so the, the, the way people use language, of course, changes over times. And uh, we think our definition of city, there's a legal definition, which is 
the city limits, to the city government, the mayor. But then we all know that metropolitan areas are huge, and that's really the every man thinks of it as part of the city, where the suburb and, and the city are all one if you if you live in Philadelphia or New York or Boston. Uh, so so the the definitions of separating suburbs from cities and so on is is uh, I don't think it's really that useful. Uh, and it's it's it does it sort of often misses what's what's on the ground. Probably a wise it's a wise answer. Um, so maybe delving into the book um, more 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 specifically, um, I would say, and you don't do this only in this book, but you you do use the past as a framing device for the present. Um, and at the onset of the conversation, you talked about the period. Uh, of the 50s and the 60s and how we made you know terrible mistakes in the in the making of our cities but but your book also traces um, important urban design theories that sort of predate that period that set the stage for mm-hmm. what you're discussing um, now so for the sake of our listeners can you just provide a little bit of a historical context for an understanding of the present day city maybe some of these key movements that you discuss in the book um, Sure. I, I think I, I discussed sort of four or five ideas to, that sort of influenced uh, urban design and city planning in the 20th century. The, the first one is, of course, the City Beautiful movement, which was a movement and uh, was the first time that Americans really started to think of cities as something that maybe needed to be planned. Previously, cities were simply real estate projects. They, you laid out a grid and people, you, if you were lucky, people moved in and built things. And, and that was sort of enough. And I, I write in the book, in the beginning of the, the turn of the century is when the American economy really became the biggest economy in the world. Uh, America was not yet a world power politically, but economically it was. Uh, it was completely an internal market or very, very little export at that point. But it became the biggest economy in the world and Americans became rich and they could travel and they would go to Europe and they would realize there's another world out there and we may have the biggest economy in the world, but we can't really say that we have the most beautiful cities in the world because they were kind of blown away when they went to London or Paris or Rome. I mean, these were, of course, very old cities. All our cities were very new. Uh, but they there was there was clearly they were superior in terms of the urban experience, and so the the, the city beautiful movement was very much a a reaction to that and an attempt to make the city beautiful. And as I write, the the plans were much too ambitious. And in any case, you it's very hard to plan a city in a democracy because everybody has to agree. We don't have a king or even a, a, our president is not powerful enough because he doesn't control cities the way, say, a French president does. Uh, so, uh, but we did have a, it had a huge impact on, on the center of cities and on, on the railway stations and the libraries and city halls and cultural centers, uh, civic centers that were built and, and remain and are arguably the best thing that we've ever done in a city was in that period, sort of 1890 to maybe 1920. And, you know, the New York Public Library, Penn Station, all these, the great railway stations that were built, uh, which were private, of course, they were built by railroad companies, not by by public. Most, many of these things were, were either private or semi-private. Um, and then you have another idea, which is the Garden City, which was really a, a British idea, but it, it it migrates all over Europe and has an influence in America as well. Uh, it it again doesn't quite work as a city, but it has an enormous influence on suburbs and in the Garden suburb, which is not Levittown, but it predates Levittown and it predates the automobile. Uh, but it's it's a it's a a kind of 
urban idea of the suburb. And it really starts with somebody like Olmsted back in the 1880s. But it's uh, it it influences our idea of of, of essentially suburban cities, uh, and the suburb becomes part of the city. People still work in the city. The cities are they were called central business districts. They were the places where people actually worked: office buildings, factories, and in, in cases of industrial cities. Uh, but they lived. Many people lived outside the city in these kind of village-like, uh, much higher density than what uh, what we later think of as suburbs. Um, and then you have the kind of modern ideas, the later ideas, one of which is, is Frank Lloyd Wright's idea of the broadacre city, uh, which nobody ever built a broadacre city in a Frank Lloyd Wright sort of plan. And yet, in fact, he was prescient and he saw what the future was and what what really happened is exactly what he, in a sense, foretold. He was he was very much based on experience. It wasn't a theoretical idea. It was an idea that, like he saw what Americans were doing. He saw the the explosion of car ownership. He was a great automobile enthusiast. He had many many cars over his life, usually very expensive big cars. <laughs> But uh, so he was saying this, if, if, if people become mobile, the city's going to disappear. He wrote a famous book called The Disappearing City, and it didn't quite disappear, but it shrank enormously uh, in, the, in that period. Um, the other uh, big idea on, on, in city planning is, is Le Corbusier's idea of the radiant city, the city of the sort of to turn the city into a kind of park and you would live in high buildings and you would get rid of streets. He didn't like streets at all. Uh, very much a, th- a wisdom of theory. It was all theoretical because there were, he was talking about tall buildings. There were no tall buildings in Europe. Uh, only Americans at that point in the early 1900s were building tall buildings. And yet he imagined this would be the city. So it was a very theoretical idea. It never really caught on, certainly not in America, where people had no interest in living in tall buildings. But it did have a huge influence on public housing because poor people didn't have a choice. And architects and city planners and city administrators uh, decided and were sort of convinced by Corbusier that tall buildings, in very spread out, uh, purely residential, was the solution. And you couldn't you couldn't sell it to the middle class, but you could force poor people to live in it. And that's where the the public housing project. And we built some huge ones, mostly demolished by now. Your students would not be able to visit any of these because they don't exist anymore. Where they had a very short life, but extremely destructive one because they were built in in residential areas which had to be cleared for these buildings to be built. And of course, they they had a, a very negative effect on the people who had to live in these tall buildings, uh, families. Uh, and of course, they were not well kept. The cities, the federal government essentially subsidized the construction of the buildings, but there was no money to maintain them. So they they really were poorly maintained and they 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 essentially started getting abandoned by the by their inhabitants even before eventually the cities demolished them because they were they were places where there was crime it was they were completely unmanageable for cities so this so these are ideas that in that influenced us that, uh, in hearing you describe it and i think you condensed you know about 100 mm. years yes into the last 6 minutes or so uh, it's kind of little masterclass mm-hmm urbanism in America, but out of the ones you describe, um, it could be argued that the last one, right, the Radiant City Ideas by Le Corbusier, were the ones that really laid the foundations for many of the decisions of the 1950s and 60s, or the urban patterns that would really kind of reverse many of the historical patterns of cities prior. Do you think that's the case? Um, or not, you know, I'm, I'm curious about your thoughts. No, I think it was, because I think the there was an idea, the modern architecture, of course, was, was a reactionary movement based on the notion of we need a new architecture for a new time. 
This is a different age, it's technological and so on. And the, the, the city planning was an extension of that. The city was going to be a new city. So instead of streets, we would have uh, either underground streets like, like in, in Montreal or, or overground sort of uh, walkways to separate people from cars. Uh, so there was a, all kind of innovation. In, and just as innovation was part of architecture, innovation became part of city planning. I should finish off with, with the, the final idea, which was a reaction against all of these ideas. And that was, of course, Jane Jacobs. Because Jane Jacobs was very much a person who learned from experience rather than from theories. And she was extremely critical of what she called the... Uh, Garden City. The, how what did she call it? The City Beautiful, the Radiant City Beautiful movement, or she kind of lumped them all together. And and she was very critical of planning. She believed that cities had a kind of organic life. They were very complex. They they were not easy to understand. They they grew up over long periods of time. Uh, she was a great fan of streets, for example, and showed how they how they work in cities. And she wrote this famous book called The Life and Death of Great American Cities. And because she was a very good observer and she was also a very good writer, this book had enormous influence. Uh, and in, in many ways, the, the, the earlier ideas I spoke about were uh, she called them into question and uh, successfully convinced people that we really should look at how cities really work and not try to rebuild them, but really try to modify them because there were there were reasons to modify them. But in in her mind, uh, it was the the city was mostly okay, and what had been done sort of since 1900 was was ignored the really the strength of of traditional cities. Traditional in an American sense, not she wasn't talking about European cities. She and most she lived in Greenwich Village in New York, and a lot of her uh, observations of city life were based on uh, on what she saw there. And she was a she initially wrote for architecture magazines, and so uh, we of course we don't have architecture magazines anymore, but we used to, and they actually had articles by people like Jane Jacobs and weren't just pictures of buildings they were ideas and so that's where she started from the book the book came a bit a bit later uh, but she made her her sort of reputation initially by writing these articles about the way the city really was and you know what why didn't why did we were building these mass housing projects which had not one store in them because at that time, there was this notion that you should put all the cultural buildings in Lincoln Center, and then you would have the shops would be in a shopping center. And we had this notion of centers for everything. And then you had a work, the, the city, which was the business district, that was only for working. Uh, it was a stupid idea and completely unhistorical because great cities have always combined all these things. Uh, and, and American cities in, initially also combined, if you walk down Fifth Avenue, there's a church, then there's a department store across the street from the church, uh, and then there's an apartment building, then there's an office building. It was a complete mixture of things, and it worked very well. So so she was sort of criticizing, like, we're solving the problems which are not problems, and we're destroying things that really work. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, she was an extraordinary figure. And I mean, had she not existed, we would have lost uh, many neighborhoods. But I know for one, uh, we would have lost the North End, for instance, in Boston. She was a great advocate of that fabulous um, neighborhood. And she was going against the giants that were theorizing about it at uh, at Harvard's Graduate School of Design with people. Yeah. Like and so she was remarkable because she was an outsider in the field, which oftentimes great insights come from outsiders in the various fields because they look at something without the baggage of theory and without the baggage of, you know, the kinds of things that sometimes we carry and you can look at it through fresh eyes. So, yeah, I, I think uh, for those that are not familiar with her work um, and that are listening, um, she's certainly one uh, worth recalling and and really continuing um, much of the work that she was doing. So thank you for for 
for pointing to her. Um, so, you know, where are we now? Um, I think your book, uh, your book cites a number of, um, you know, contemporary projects is obviously it's, is critical really of the cities that we've built, uh, post 1950s, let's say post the second world war. So where do you see us now? And, and maybe we can, we can elaborate a little bit on some of the projects that you discuss in the book. Um, that you think provide maybe um, interesting examples of of urban living? Well, one of the things that happened is because there was such a, because the planners basically messed it up. And the I should say planners and architects because there was a kind of overlap between them. That nobody took them seriously and they didn't take themselves seriously. So they retreated. The architects retreated to pure architecture they they got out of the business of planning altogether and the planners re retreated to statistics and they became sort of social planners they they they, they stopped physical planning altogether of course this are are we we entered a period of great prosperity and and after that and what happened was that the developers took over and the develop because we needed to build, and the architects were not interested in building ordinary buildings, you know, where people lived and worked. They they were interested in in the special buildings, uh, like landmark buildings. And the the planners didn't they they were so rattled by their bad experience. They just got out of the business of physical planning altogether. They they stopped drawing. You you go to a planning school. There's no drawing tables. There it's all uh, it's it's become very much a social, political social uh, kind of field. Uh, so so the develop some but somebody had to build. And what happened was the developers took over. And developers are they have a really bad name, which of course are previous president didn't help us with that because Trump was a great, was of course a developer, but developers are really interesting people because they have no morality. They don't, they're not, they're not forcing people to say, we know what's good for you. That's what you have to accept. That's what planners were doing. They said, well, you should live in tall buildings and that's what, that's good. That's the way, that's a modern way. That's the way you should live. Developers say, what do you want? And we'll try to give it to you. If you you want to live in a house, we'll we'll figure out a way to build houses uh, that satisfy that way. Or do you do you want uh, do you like streets? We can build streets. And so, uh, one of the people, one of the groups that learned from Jane Jacobs was developers. Developers read Jane Jacobs, and it made sense to them. And you get uh, developments which use streets, which use sidewalks. That that sort of the return of a kind of new version of downtown is is very much a result of Jacobs, but but her influence on developers who build those kind of things. That she she was a great advocate of mixing uses, and developers caught on to that. Like you can put stores on the ground floor, and then people can live on top of it, or people can work above. And so the whole idea of mixed use has become a a, a kind of one of the standard strategies of real estate development now, uh, but that came very much from 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 the from Jane Jacobs's observations. So the the shift to developers meant that you were getting things were happening which started with people. Developers can't force people to do anything. In fact, if a developer does something that people don't like, he goes bankrupt. If, if he he has to he has to take people into account because ultimately he is or she increasingly is is the stores have to attract people. If if they if the developer builds a shopping center that doesn't attract people, then the the, the stores won't go there, and pretty soon he's in trouble. So. If you build an apartment, a condo building like the Bob Stern building on Central Park, and it becomes the most expensive building in New York, uh, that's a success for the developer, of course, because if it if it didn't wasn't successful, he would be out of business very quickly. Uh, it's a very risky business development, but it it 
this shift of of moving to trying to figure out what people actually want rather than telling them what they should have i think that's the biggest change that happens in that post sort of post 1970 period well uh, i think we're coming to the middle of the episode and um i'd like to take that back up when we return they told because you know i'm sitting speaking to you from miami and I would argue Miami is a city that wasn't founded. It was developed. <laughs> we yeah. are the developer city par excellence. And there's a number of, uh, of uh, I think, contemporary pressures right now um, that are changing our landscape at astronomical rates. And I, I might want to follow up with a question or two when we return from the break. Um, so we uh, will continue our conversation in just a few minutes with the esteemed writer, critic, author, architect, Witold Brzezinski. Do not miss uh, the second half of this conversation. We'll be right back. Follow Voice America at facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Did you know that the quality of our daily lives is directly influenced by the design of our built environment? Our homes, our work, the way we move and where we play are all shaped by the design of our cities. This thought-provoking new show from architect, urban designer, and educator, Carrie Pennebod, examines the complex forces that shape the making of our physical world. Lively conversations with leading experts in a variety of fields engage some of the greatest challenges facing our cities today, including climate change, affordable housing, embedded technologies, infrastructure design, architecture and the arts, urban policy, social mobility, and much, much more. Tune in every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time, so that together we can design a better world. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to On Cities with Carrie Pennebon. We hope you're enjoying today's episode. Now back to the show with Carrie. Welcome back. I'm continuing my conversation with Vito Rybczynski, and we've been talking about the insights that he garnered in putting together his fabulous book, Makeshift Metropolis. And just before the break, we were you had kind of laid the groundwork for the historical um, uh, planning ideas that set the stage for maybe the cities that we have today. And I think you mentioned something quite interesting, which is that the contemporary city, maybe the post-war city, is the developer city. Certainly that's the case in Miami. Um, but beyond development, it seems like there's also political zoning, a number of forces that shape the contemporary city. Um, and I just wonder if you could dwell a little bit longer on that observation, Vitold, uh, before we really dive into some of these um, interesting projects that you refer to in your book. So tell me a little bit more about the developer city. Well, all American cities are developer cities because our cities start from scratch. And if, if whether you're a colonial, uh, an Englishman who, who's setting up a, a, a new, a new, a new town in the Carolinas, uh, or starting something in New England, you have to attract people from Europe. It's a long way. It's it's an unpleasant tr- journey to get there, and so how do you do that? And so there, right from the beginning, development uh, is is a is how these cities grow. The also remember in the beginning, let's say in the time of the American Revolution, uh, there's no industry here, very little industry. There's, all there is is land. And, and that's why most of the founding fathers were real estate developers, because that's all there was. There, it, the, I mean, the industry came later and the factories, but initially there really wasn't anything here of value except land. And so 
and of course in Europe land was controlled very much by aristocrats and it was the the notion that an ordinary workman could own land and build a house was was outlandish it was not impossible uh whereas in america at least you could offer that you could say you, if you come here you can own a farm you go you can build your house and so uh developments were very much like all our cities developed that way and it it also explains a little bit the sort of rough and ready character of our cities because they're subject to market forces and what people want uh, every american city for example had a limit on height very early uh, los angeles had a 10 story height limit well into the 20th century but in chicago had a height limit but the the problem was the pressures of uh, the market were meant that they kept changing the height limit and raising it so in in chicago it gets raised and raised and raised and eventually they sort of almost get rid of it altogether they say as high as you want uh, same thing happened in new york philadelphia had a height limit you weren't allowed which was sort of a, a kind of informal agreement that you wouldn't build higher than the tower of city hall which has a, a statue of william penn on top of it and so that william penn's hat was the sort of height limit for a long time and then somebody said why why do you have to do we're going to build higher than that and then now of course city hall has kind of disappeared in tall building but the tall buildings are the result of the desire the demand of people to live to live or work and initially more work than live later people also wanted to to live in downtown but initially it was about working because there were advantages to having your office near other people's offices and the more offices you had the more advantages it was so the buildings got taller and taller uh, but it was very much driven by the demand of the market not the demand of developers to make money but developers only make money if they satisfy some sort of market demand and the market demand initially was for office buildings and there was so much demand you could build very tall office buildings and fortunately we invented elevators and telephones at the same time which made it possible to work in a tall building otherwise it wouldn't have wouldn't have happened uh, and and construction i mean steel construction helped Yeah you know it's funny the market may know what it needs right so let's say the now there's a housing crisis all over uh you know the US or at least that's what we read and certainly what we feel in places like Miami um so the market certainly has demands but i i wonder because the market doesn't always create beautiful places i'm just going to give you an example so uh you know right now the high buildings uh, i'm working right now on a project and i was at a community meeting 2 days ago and we did a comparison um with plus urbia local urban design firm and they we analyzed that uh that a high rise will give you a density of 120 units per acre versus a four story building in one of the historic neighborhoods because it doesn't have all the amenities and all the parking needs it can give you 150 units you know per acre so if the market is telling us that we need more housing here is a market demand and the developer for example is going to meet that demand there's got to be other structures in place to say okay we've got this demand but there's better ways of delivering this we don't just have to pack it in and make it as high as possible but that's what we do because our zoning codes and the political structures allow us to do that so what what do we have that can temper you know it's obviously meet the demands of the market if we need housing but how can we do it in better ways that don't necessarily produce quite frankly many of the sometimes bleak or less than desirable urban environments that we're building our city in our cities today that's complicated i mean the, you mentioned zoning and there are many people who have studied the urban economists would would say that if there is and i don't know if there really is such a crisis in affordable housing but if there is a crisis in affordability the main reason is is the regulations that prevent people from building houses uh and so it's not clear what what is what is causing that but mostly it's uh 
if you are if you already own a house, you don't want a cheaper house next door. You don't mind a more expensive house next door because that'll raise your property value. But you don't want a cheaper house next door if if you have a certain kind of community. You don't want poor people in your community uh, because they're going to drive property values down and they may not take care of things properly. And you actually, if you're a if you're a community mainly of homeowners, you don't want tenants because tenants are not going to take care of things and the landlords of tenants may not take care of things properly and tenants have no stake. I mean, they, they, they're, they've they got an annual lease and so, you know, they're going to have a different approach. So, so and, and since you've risked your life savings on your house, you don't want to take more risks than you have to. So some of this is sort of very conservative and you can try to argue people out of it, but basically they're afraid of losing this one big investment that they have. For most people, their house is there in their big investment. So the not in my backyard syndrome is is understandable, but that's what often causes. And of course the politicians react to that and they, they introduce restrictive zoning, which doesn't allow you minimum lot sizes and so on. Um, so there are many reasons but many, some would argue that the the amount of re, the restrictions are actually what's part of the problem rather than the solution. You write about the beauty, and when I I, I taught uh, design courses in the Wharton School a long time, my my colleagues would always ask me, "You say we should do this, but who's going to pay for it? And does that raise the value? Can I charge more rent if I do X Y Z or or?" Can I sell the condominium for more if you, if it has this quality that you're talking about? And that's a, va a valid question because uh, the people who are that you quoted are not the people who are building. They're not risking their money building a new building. They're saying you should do this, you should do that. That's the politician or the regulator. But the developer has to do it, and then somebody has to pay for it. And either he's if it costs more, he has to raise the rent. And of course, one of the great discoveries of the new urbanism movement was that they were talking about things that made the product more valuable. So they were saying you can, you should build higher density housing, which will be smaller lots, which will enable the developer to build more housing, and that will pay for the improvements that we would like to see in the public spaces, the parks or landscaping or street furniture or whatever it is. So the the success that New Orleans had is very much based on the fact that what what they were, you could say, promulgating uh, from the was was affordable to the developer. There was a it was a formula which meant you could build nicer houses because you could sell them for more. Or people were prepared to pay more, even though the house was smaller, they were prepared to pay more for it because they liked that sort of community feeling in in the neighborhood. Uh, so th that that's the, the the sort of key to the thing. If you simply make rules and say we need more beautiful buildings, but then who's going to pay for them? Is the is the are you going to pony up and? Is the community going to pay for them? Somebody has to pay for them. And it's, yeah. I don't think it's, yeah. sorry. Figuring out ways to quantify uh, the value of design on the one hand, but maybe it's also um, not being so segregated in our discussions, you know, for the architects to not demonize the developers and for the developer, because they're all types of developers. I, for one, have worked with extraordinary developers and I'm doing that right now. So I think maybe rather, and we should be having more interdisciplinary conversations, you know, great designers should become more fiscally savvy and they should understand about how design can truly add value and make a case for it. So I think you bring up uh, a lot of things that I, for one, I think I'm going to continue to talk to you about offline, but I do want to get back to the central um, kind of focus of the conversation, which was uh, your book, Makeshift Metropolis. And um, you point to a number of projects that you think are, are at the very least good contemporary examples. And we've been talking a lot about America, but your book actually points to a new city in Israel 
Modem, I hope I'm saying that correctly, um, and uh, by the architect Mose, Moshe Safdi. Um, and so I was wondering if you could describe this project to our listeners and what you believe that it teaches us. Well, it's, I, I mentioned it partly because I, I had written about it and I had visited it, uh, but I was, it, it was interesting because it was, in a sense, it was what it wasn't. It wasn't new urbanism. It wasn't you know the radiant city. No, there were some high-rise buildings, but they were quite special. Uh, it was. Uh, and and it was it was a real city. I mean, the the problem with new urbanism is there's not much urbanism. I mean, they're they're really either suburban projects or or tiny projects. Uh, Modi'in has a population now of several hundred thousand. It's a real city. It's not it's not just a development. It's halfway between Jerusalem and Tel Aviv, connected by train to both. Uh, and what. What Safdi did in the planning was interesting because it's it's kind of like a garden city. It's 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 in a very hilly terrain. So, uh, but it's got the qualities of garden of a garden city, although it's it's high density. The it's in um, Israel has a very bad record of building new cities. They're really awful, uh, and they it was mainly because they were under a lot of pressure. Here's a new country, it's growing in population very quickly, and they were really just throwing things up, you know, barracks and getting, and and so there, there, there was a, and they, these were public, often built with public money. Uh, and so Modin was 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 different because it's a developer city. It's not. It's built by developers. It's not built. There's no public money, except in the obvious things like schools and and public facilities. Uh, and he divided up the city. Also, he, he realized that the the failure of modern modernistic cities is they're all designed by one person, Corbusier or uh, Oscar Niemeyer. Uh, which is horrible. I mean, a city designed by what's wonderful in cities is variety and and the enormous variety that you get. Where even on a street, the, each you see a bunch of row houses, but they're not all the same. And so he divided the city up and had different architects and different working with developers doing different neighborhoods in the city. I mean, he designed a kind of an overall network. They had to fit together, but there, there was there was no. Unlike New Urban, there were no rules uh, about architecture. It could be whatever, whatever, whatever the person thought wanted to do. I think there was, there were some. There were no rules, for instance, about materials and all. You know, the, whether they were. Because when you see aerial images of the built out, I've never seen it in person. It seems quite. Um, uh, cohesive, actually, in terms of its material choices. So, do you feel that that? So, did that just happen? Well, it is cohesive because I mean, Israelis drive. It just not the cars are smaller, but they. So, it was very much an automobile city. So, when and the the typical Israel, the typical housing that's affordable for Israelis is it has to be a walk up because elevators are expensive. Uh, you have to deal with parking. So there's a kind of the density. It you end up with sort of four-story, three, four-story buildings. Uh, they can't accommodate more more cars than a lot can accommodate. So even though they were different developers, they they ended up with similar sorts of. There's a single. There's usually there's a staircase up the center, and each landing there's an apartment on each side, and so there's six. Six or eight apartments in a building, and that's become that's very much a sort of, and they're like little condominium type of arrangements. So each building is like a, a mini condom, a small condominium. Uh, the only tall buildings were, they were uh, were for elderly people or single sm- single people or unmarried people. The other housing is all family housing, and and the, he put them on the hilltop. So the the idea was that these would be sort of things that you would see in the city from a distance. Um, and, and those buildings are, I guess, 15 stories, maybe 20 at the most. Uh, otherwise, it's, the city is essentially a walk-up city. It's the, there, there are no elevator buildings. There, there, elevator buildings would be much too expensive. Uh, 
and so it's it's a and and because of the topography, it's very hilly. It was, I think it was a kind of military testing range or something. It was an empty site. There was nothing on it. Uh, it it it's very hilly, so you, so these buildings step up and down these slopes, and of course the 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 roads have to be fit, fitted to the terrain. So there's a kind of Olmstedian quality to it because you get a lot of snaky roads that are trying to. It's not a grid laid over like San Francisco is a grid laid over topography. This is very much trying to re respond to the topography. So there, it does have this Olmstedian quality, which I thought was interesting. And, and, and it's been a great success. I mean, it, it, when it, when again, not because people were forced to live there. It's not public housing. People had to decide and, and, sp and spend money to buy one of these units. And, and so it, it grew. And then the, there's a, the one sort of the, there's two interesting failures in it, or a kind of a failure. Uh, he had a kind of idea of a downtown, which was more like a traditional uh, Israeli city or, or like old Jerusalem. Uh, and he couldn't find a, a shopping center developer who would be willing to do that. So th in the end, they had to go, the, the largest shopping center developer in in Israel agreed that he would build something, but he wasn't going to build something that radically different from what he did. And so it's a it's very much a shopping mall. Mm. Uh, it's designed by Softy, so it's a nice shopping mall, but it is a shopping mall. It's it's it has some differences. It's open 24 hours a day. It has it's it's it has the only the only parking it has is in structures, so it isn't surrounded by parking lots. It's integrated with the streets of the of the the center of the city, which has some office buildings and other things in it. Uh, but the other thing is that they they didn't think about big box stores. Um, very important for most American big box stores is where you can buy affordable stuff, Walmarts and Sam's Club and so on. They didn't think of that at all. It was like it wasn't part. So they had a part of the city which was zoned for light industry. They didn't want light industry all mixed up with the housing. So they had a kind of set aside area. And that's where all the big box stores are. That's where the, the Home Depot type of stores, which is very important in a new city because everybody's or, or Ikea-type stores, or uh, gardening supply stores. And, and it looks very much like a power center in any American suburb. Uh, oh. And that's, that's very much the market. And, of course, it's full of people. It's, very, it's, it's a key part of the city. Uh, I don't know what else they could have done. They, if they had thought of it, I'm not sure how they would have what else they would have done. Uh, but they that was... Uh, Kind of that was a pure market-driven thing, which the planners had hadn't thought of really at all. Well, I think when in hearing you describe it, uh, I think the appeal uh, for you to include it in the book is that it creates a kind of hybrid model, borrowing from some of the maybe some of the best theories of the last 150 years. But then also, it's a messy thing to build cities, right? Mm. It's not. It's not an art single architectural project, as you mentioned earlier. Um, it, it, it involves so many people, so many forces, and so sometimes it's messy and less than ideal. You know, it would have been amazing if the developer could have uh, gone so far as, you know, explore an alternate model to the shopping mall, and then if we could have figured out ways for that industrial park, you know, to not necessarily be there. But I think Sometimes there's compromises, and uh, and and cities are again a messy endeavor. I think for those and remember, Israel's a democracy, so that's a very important part. That I mean, you're absolutely right about the messiness, but the messiness is also is part of the political system. Uh, I mean, Saudi Arabia is building this lunatic linear city, but of course they can do that because it's a it's the essentially a king or a king in waiting. Uh, can decide something like that. And a democracy, you can't do that unless unless one developer was huge enough to this take it all, which of course would is impossible the scale of that. Well we're told we're coming to the end of the episode. So maybe in about a minute or so, I'd like to ask you the question mm -hmm. I asked my guest. Yes. What is your favorite city and why? Mm -hmm. They told. 
Well, I, I knew you were going to ask this. You were kind enough to warn me. And I, I was thinking about this. And I think for me, it's not like I love Venice or I love Paris. Um, it's rather, I realized it was had to do with time. Like one of my favorite cities is Montreal in the 1960s, because I had just graduated at the end of the 60s from college. I was a new architect. It was my first jobs, my first client during that time, my first building built for a client. And so the city was like a, a special place for me. And Montreal was was coming out of a high of, of the uh, expo. It had just had expo. It was going to have the Olympic Games. I mean, it was like... And there were, as a result of Expo, the, the town was full of architects because all architects had come to Montreal to build things for Expo Pavilion. And so, on. so it was a wonderful place for it to be a, a young architect starting out. Um, but yeah. so it's tied to time. It was that for me. It was a, a magical time in a, in that place, and that it's not that anymore. I've been to Montreal many times since. It's, it's become a different city. I'm a different person. I mean, at the time is is different, it's, but it's not my city. And that city of the 60s, Montreal, like all American cities or Canadian cities, changes all the time. So the, my city of the 60s is gone. It's the city of Leonard Cohen, too. I mean, all of the what what he sang about, what what was attractive, a lot of those things have literally disappeared, and and it it's much looks much more like an American city now. They've got kind of these faceless tall buildings in the center and lots of restaurants. It's very it's a very active, vibrant city. If you're in your twenties, it must be a great place to be. But it's not my city anymore. So. I think favorite cities for me would have to do with time. You know, there were moments in when Paris was was a special place that I would was going a lot. And and again, it was a it was a, what age you are, what what your interests are. I mean, it all kind of comes together. And and then actually, the one the one I w I did want to mention was New York because I was a writer and I was living in Canada, but. The, you know, the publisher, my publisher was in New York, my agent was in New York, the magazines and papers I wrote for were all in New York. So when I went to New York, it was like a special, extra special place for me. And this, I'm talking maybe the 80s, around what the 80s. Saying that all this, you know, the temporal qualities of cities and the cities in time and the cities that maybe live um, in our memories, um, in addition to obviously... Yes. The environment so thank you for that uh, again thank you for the trilogy of interviews i've learned a great deal and um and i look forward to continued conversations thank you again Vitold, for joining on cities thank you it's been a great pleasure Thanks for listening to On Cities with Carrie Pennebod. We hope today's episode has given you some insight into how the design of the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Please join us again next week 